0: Well, listeners, you're on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and you're listening to the DOGS program. The Australian Council of Defence of Government Schools we're here every Saturday 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And we have a website at www.adogs.info and we put up a press release 993 this week. And this is about the Labour Party conference, which was held last Friday. As we told you in our previous uh, previous session last week, there was a concern, particularly amongst the rationalists and the secularists in Australia, but also those who value separation of religion from the state, that the Labour Party was just going to quietly drop the idea of secular public education in their policy documents. Well, it hasn't happened. Over to you, Andy. Tell us all about it.
1: Thanks, Jean. Labor Party reinserts commitment to secular education in national policy. DOGS welcomes the Labor Party's decision to reinsert the reference to secular public education into its national policy document and congratulates the Rationalist Society of Australia on their successful lobbying in this matter. The Labour Party was considering dropping the concept of secular public education in its national policy document at the national conference held on 18th of August. But on the day, the party amended the proposed paragraph on public education to add the word secular. Paragraph 76 of the national platform now reads, Public schools are among our nation's most important institutions and should be fully and fairly funded to deliver excellent secular education that meets the need of every child. The change to the policy document follows public advocacy by the Rationalist Society of Australia and lobbying by individuals and others across the country. In early June, the RSA reported that the party removed the reference to universal free and secular public education from the draft which it was circulating to rank and file members as part of a consultation process. Earlier this month, the RSA reported that Despite a number of Labor members having called on the party to reinsert a commitment to secular public education, a revised version of the draft policy document still left out the reference. On 16 August, in a video viewed by more than 70,000 people on Twitter, RSA President Meredith Doig urged Labor members to tell Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and the party to commit to secular public education. Following the conference outcome. Dr Doig, the President of the Rationalist Society of Australia, thanked all those people who had taken action. We know that for many Labor parliamentarians and and rank-and-file members supporting secular public education is part of their DNA. So we're very pleased to see that the Federal Labor Party will not be abandoning the commitment to the secular nature of the public school system, she said. Thank you to everyone who responded on our reporting of this issue and who took action. We know that many people across the country made submissions to the party's initial consultation process and then contacted their local MPs and Mr Albanese to say that they care about secular public education. This demonstrates how people who care about secularism can make a difference when they make their voices heard. Back to you, Jean.
0: Well, isn't that all very interesting? It's very rare that we have a win like that. It would be better if they had universal or free secular and universal education in their policy, but I suppose we can get back to work on that one too. But um, there's a reason why the dogs are concerned about the separation of religion from the state because there's a very interesting case up in Queensland that Dale is now going to tell us about. Over to you, Dale.
2: Thanks Jean, I've got an article here by Renee Barker entitled Why a Queensland Court overturned a ban on religious knives at school. So the Supreme Court of Queensland last week overturned a law banning children from bringing knives to school for religious reasons. This will allow Sikh students, parents and teachers to carry a ceremonial dagger known as a kirpan at schools in Queensland. Initiated Sikhs must carry a kirpan as one of five articles of faith. Those preparing for initiation, including school-aged children, may also carry the five markers of faith. Many kirpans are blunt and worn stitched inside a sheath under a person's clothes. This isn't the first time the issue of kia puns in schools has been raised. In 2021, the New South Wales government temporarily banned students from wearing kia puns at school following an incident where a 14-year-old boy used one to stab another student. The ban was eventually lifted after consultation with the Sikh community, leading to new guidelines. In 2006, the Canadian Supreme Court found a ban on wearing kia puns in school was a breach of freedom of religion under the Canadian Charter of Rights. What made the Queensland law particularly egregious is that not only did it prohibit the freedom of religion of a small and vulnerable minority, it did so deliberately. The only religious or ethnic group in Australia that habitually wears a religious or cultural symbol that resembles a knife are Sikhs. The law was therefore directly targeted at Sikhs. The Queensland case highlights the needs for Australia's secular legal system to recognise the adverse impact of law on religious and cultural minorities. So what did the court say? All states and territories have laws prohibiting people from carrying and using knives in public places and schools. However, knives can be used for a range of legitimate activities, such as cutting food or whittling wood. Children can carry knives as part of a scout's uniform, for example. As a result, All states and territories have exemptions that allow people, including children, to carry and use knives where it's reasonably necessary. In New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania and the Australian Capital Territory, there are also specific exemptions that allow Sikhs to wear a kirpan for religious purposes. In Western Australia and the Northern Territory, Sikhs rely on the general exemption when wearing a kirpan in public places or at schools. But Queensland's laws are a little different. Section fifty-one-one of Queensland's Weapons Act from 1990 prohibited carrying knives in a public place or school without a reasonable excuse. As in other states and territories, the Act also provides a range of reasons, including religion, for carrying a knife in a public place. However, Section 51.5 specifically states that religion is not a reasonable excuse for carrying a knife at as- school. At a school. To be clear, children could still bring a knife to school in Queensland for a range of other reasons, such as to cut up food or as part of their studies. However, Sikh children were specifically banned from carrying a knife for religious reasons. The Supreme Court found the ban on bringing a knife to school specifically for religious reasons was inconsistent with the Racial Discrimination Act. As per Australia's constitution, state laws that are inconsistent with Commonwealth laws are void to the extent of the inconsistency. So the court found that Section 51.5 of Queensland's Weapons Act 1990 was void. A religion or ethnicity? Sikhism originated in the Punjab region in South Asia in the 15th century. There are around 25 to 30 million Sikhs worldwide, with about 5 million living outside the Punjab region. At the 2021 census, there were 210,400 Sikhs in Australia, roughly 0.8% of the population. While Sikhism is commonly thought of as a religion, the courts have recognised Sikhs have a common ethnic origin. As one of the judges explained in the case, nearly all Sikhs originate from the Punjab region. Nearly all Sikhs continue to have a link with family in Punjab, practice elements of Punjabi culture and speak the Punjabi language. As a result, Sikhs are considered to be an ethno-religious group for the purposes of the Commonwealth Racial Discrimination Act. A knife or a religious symbol? The kirpan is one of the five articles of faith worn by initiated Sikhs and those preparing for initiation. The other four are a kachera, which is a special undergarment, kanga, a wooden comb, kara, an iron band, and kesha's, unshorn hair. If one of the five items is removed, they're required to undergo a lengthy absolution or forgiveness process. The Queensland Supreme Court found the kirpan was a knife for the purpose of the Weapons Act 1990. It found that a knife remains a knife no matter how blunt or sharp it is, how it's worn or how easy it is to access. To Sikhs, a kirpan is a fundamentally religious symbol. It's a symbol of dignity and of their obligation to stand up for others. Referring to the kirpan as a knife downplays its important religious significance, but in a secular legal system, defining it in any other way would be unworkable. So what happens now? The Queensland Department of Education is carefully considering the Supreme Court's decision. The court did leave the door open for a complete ban on knives in school, although this would impact other legitimate uses of knives, such as preparing food. Keopans are currently worn in schools by students, parents and teachers in other states of Australia, often with strict guidelines. The Queensland education system will likely need to develop similar guidelines. That's very interesting. Back to you, Jean.
0: Well, that just goes to prove that secular doesn't mean anti-religion. It means uh, that it doesn't really matter. Uh, In school, the children are there to receive an education. They're not there to be discriminated against on the basis of their religion or their culture or their ethnicity or their colour, their class, their colour or their creed. That's why we believe it should be free. Without any fees, it should be secular, that is, everybody should have access without any regard whatever to their background, and it should be universal, it should be available for all children. But um, we'll have a bit of a break now and we'll come back. Sorrel's got a very interesting article uh, from Sydney.
2: It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than
3: what
4: we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3CR.org.au forward slash subscribe, or call the station on 039419
0: 8377. Well, listeners, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program because Sol has a very interesting article written by Lindsay Connors um, bewailing, really, the inequalities in Australian education. Lindsay Collins uh, started off her career as a parent back in the day uh, and she was on the Schools Commission after Joan Kerner and she was very happy then to um, advocate the state aid position, that is the giving of funding to private schools. But it seems that now she's not so sure about it. But um, over to you, Soul. let's hear what Lindsay Connors, who is a retired professor of education now has to say about the situation.
4: Thanks, Jean. So as you said, this article is written by Lindsay Connors and it is entitled, Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, a better and fairer school system. In the words of Nelson Mandela, there can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. The review set up by the Albanese government to inform a better and fairer education system is an occasion for some serious soul-searching by Australians. The consultation paper circulated by the expert panel leading the review begins on an inspiring note. Education transforms lives. It is the key to unlocking the ability of individuals to reach their full potential, contribute to society and engage in the workforce. It is the key to improving social equity and lifting social and economic outcomes for individuals. It goes on to acknowledge that Australia's current school system provides this to many students, but not to all. This is an understatement. If we ask the mirror on the wall, which country has the fairest school system of all, we would not like the answer. I share the anxiety expressed by the Sydney Morning Herald's economics editor, Ross Gittins. The older I get, the more I worry about the nightmare we oldies are leaving for our children and grandchildren. The obvious in-your-face problem is climate change, but other difficulties are everywhere you look. There are certainly there in our school system, looming ever larger. The current review to inform a better and fairer school system takes place in the context of growing teacher shortages and financial pressures on many families with school aged children. Governments have greater responsibility than ever to provide a school system with a level and range of resources needed to equip all children and young people to deal with the social, political, and economic challenges they will inherit. There is growing consensus that our school system is not fit for this purpose. But there is a risk of governments being pressured towards solutions without a clear understanding of how our system works in the real world to influence the way money, students and teachers end up in particular schools. The purpose of a school system is to provide organisational and planning structures, processes and strategies which ensure all schools have adequate and appropriate resources, for all teachers and students to do their best work. As the American educationist Jerome Bruner stated it, "It it's inside the hearts and minds of teachers and students working together in their classrooms that the subtle process of schooling happens, the process of empowering human intelligence and human sensibility for life in an open society. The school system should support that process, not hinder it. But many of the circumstances that limit equality of educational opportunity come from the wider society, beyond the direct influence of education policy and schools. The complex effects of economic change, patterns of affluence in society and generally in specific communities, trends in the birth rate and in patterns of immigration and settlement. These all influence the social composition of schools. These factors predispose some schools to being strong in the market while others are weak. Schools in remote and and rural areas, and particularly those serving students from communities characterized by poverty, are generally hard to staff even when the overall supply of teachers is adequate. In some areas of the country, the market forces which affect schooling are now inextricably entwined with the operation of the real estate market. Parents with the capacity to buy or rent housing close to, or to transport their children to, their preferred schools have more options than those who lack these means. Irrespective of what kind of government and school system a country develops, there will be those who take decisions in their own best interests, and in particular to advance the interests of their own children. Democratic governments have an obligation to take actions to avoid or minimise collateral damage to other people's children and to adopt policies that are conducive to cooperation amongst schools rather than competition on what will always be an uneven playing field. It is right and proper for Australia to aspire to be a school system which celebrates cultural diversity But diversity has been allowed over recent decades to denigrate into disparity in a class stratified school system where the choice and competition lead to gross resource gaps among schools. Rather than giving priority to mitigating market forces which feed the stratification of schools, Australian governments have adopted policies which intensify them, as well as damaging the most vulnerable students. These policies have produced broader negative effects, stagnating achievement levels, widening resource inequities, inflated costs, and in particular the maldistribution of teachers among schools. Anxious as governments may be to avoid opening up the politically toxic issue of school funding, it is unrealistic to hope that we can achieve a better and fairer education system in a resources vacuum or without confronting the implications of current funding arrangements for the supply, quality and distribution of teachers. The Rudd-Gillard Labor Government took a positive step in 2012 in accepting the advice from the Gonski Report to reintroduce the concept of Recurrent Funding Standard, the school's resource standard, the SRS. Despite the fact that the integrity of the funding arrangements introduced by Labor in 2013, based on the Gonski review, has been seriously compromised by subsequent political decisions, the concept of a funding standard which applies to all schools, regardless of sector, should be retained. But the current mix of funding mechanisms for schools in Australia provide a weak proxy for measuring the resources really needed in actual schools, recognizing that schools are complex organizations and that teaching lies at their heart. We don't have a clear picture of how funding is allocated or spent. With these words, the consultation paper alludes to the fog created by the vagaries of the Australian Federal system. This fog has enabled cumulative political decisions, largely taken by the Commonwealth, to create a gross imbalance between the two levels of government, Commonwealth and state, when it comes to their public funding of government and non government schools. As a consequence, recurrent funding to the latter from the Commonwealth alone has now reached a level where it exceeds the total total teaching staff salary bill for the private sector as a whole. This means that the Commonwealth is now a large de facto employer of teachers, with the vast majority of teachers in the non-government school sector on its payroll, but without the attendant responsibilities and far from the action. These realities need to be linked more explicitly in future development Of a fairer and better school system
0: that's a very interesting statement just to repeat it she's saying that the total recurrent funding forget about the capital grants the recurrent funding from the commonwealth alone to private schools exceeds the payment of the teachers and she's arguing that the commonwealth government is the de facto employer of teachers in the private sector. Very interesting idea.
4: Mm, Indeed. Definitely.
0: If you sit and think about the implications of that.
4: Definitely. Enormous
0: implications. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but um, no, that's
4: a great I interruption. Think a, I... I
0: think she's making a
4: very interesting point there. Yeah, mm. I agree when you think about it
2: especially when those positions are reliant on the individual's peculiar religious tenant and the Mm. government is the employer. And that goes against Section 116 of the Constitution, doesn't it, Jean? Yeah,
0: it also goes against the uh, public service act, I would suggest, (laughs) Mm. and a few other things as well, yeah.
4: This creates both an opportunity and an obligation for the Commonwealth to work with states and territories to improve the supply, quality and distribution of teaching across the school system as a whole. Recognising that that investment in teaching is the most direct lever available to the government for influencing the quality of schooling, the current school's resource standard should be replaced by a teaching resource standard. Such a standard should capture the contemporary realities of teachers work all the elements that are fundamental to quality teaching from supply, including the recruitment and initial education of teachers, to the distribution of teachers among schools and to the range of conditions that are most conducive to teachers achieving their best through all stages of their careers.
0: Again, this is very interesting because these were all the arguments that were used in the 19th century to centralise the employment of teachers in the public system in the state governments or in the state government departments. And really what she's starting to argue is that the Commonwealth government or ACARA or the Commonwealth uh, Department of Education should have under it a a teacher um, employment and training agency and employ all of the teachers in Australia. It's an interesting concept and Mm. it's not necessarily a bad one because the reason why they centralised employment in the first place and also teacher training in the 19th century was to give teachers security of tenure Mm. and a reasonable and secure salary. And that, of course, is what is now missing for many, many teachers around Australia. And they're well qualified. They can go to other jobs. Why should they stick around when they can't have security of tenure and a reasonable salary? Why would they? Why should they?
4: Definitely. Yeah, why should yeah. they?
0: They're walking away in droves.
4: Yeah, they, yes, they are. A teaching resource standard could be described as kind of a vitamin enriched staffing formula. This would build on the strengths of the method used by the public school systems to deliver the bulk of recurrent funding to government schools. It would be both the resource standard and the funding mechanism. The standard should be developed using public schools, since these are provided to communities in vastly different circumstances across the length and breadth of the country, and then applied to all schools, public and private. The introduction of a teaching resource standard would be a constructive and practicable means for the government to demonstrate commitment to the teaching profession, recognition that teaching is an intellectually demanding profession that involves highly complex tasks and shared responsibility for creating the pay and conditions necessary to make teaching an attractive and rewarding career in order to recruit and retain quality entrants. It makes sense to retain the existing SRS until all schools have been provided with their full funding entitlement, noting that it is largely public schools which remain underfunded. But it is now time to plan for the replacement of the SRS with a resource standard and funding mechanism more directly related to each school's staffing entitlement and the related resources needed to support all students to gain the full benefits of schooling. A better, fairer school system would be one based on explicit principles and values. It troubles me that in a time of teacher shortage, some of my taxes go to fund schools already operating above the agreed SRS and well-placed to commandeer more than their fair share of the available teaching force, given the selectivity of their student intake. A democratic society that puts its children first could start by adopting the principle that public funding should not be used to create or expand resource gaps among schools, which cannot be justified on educational grounds. Definitely agree with... Well, this is all
0: all very good stuff and it's what... The Schools Commission was talking about It's what Gomsky's talking about and things are just getting worse. And I'd like to point that out to Lindsay Connors. Um, The real problem is that you're dealing with a private system that doesn't play by the rules. Mm, They look at the rules and they find a way around them every time and they argue for more and more and more and more and they've got it. That's where we're at now. And back in the day, the dogs said this would happen, and they said that if you gave money to private schools, then some public schools would become what you call waste basket institutions. And now we have a large number of public schools where we have all of the disadvantaged children put in the one school. And that is just unfair, and they should, in fact, be able to be in school with their wealthy, the wealthy cohort of their generation. But um, anyway, there's people who are writing on that too, but it was all predictable back in the 1960s. If you give money to the private sector and they can do as they please and they can lobby and tell lies, then you're going to get the situation you've got now. The only answer to the problem is to take over the private schools now because we pay for them. And if they want to be independent, then uh, they can be independent. But we should have either private or public, not uh, some kind of quango. But um, that's the dog's position. And we'll have a bit of a break now. Thank you very much, Sol, for that very long article, but very interesting one indeed. Uh, And uh, we'll have a break and then come back with a few statistics.
2: Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership.
4: Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in
2: 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today.
4: Call 03
0: 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Yes, well, we hope you're still listening to the DOGS program because this is a very interesting article from the Stats Guy. Uh, Without enough teachers, Australia's not going to make the grade. Over to you,
2: Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article by Simon Koystenmarker who calls himself the Stats Guy and he says, without enough teachers, Australia won't make the grade. I previously wrote about why the current skills shortage will persist in the coming decade despite our record migration intake. Today, we'll be looking at one occupation where a shortage of workers will have terrible consequences. We are simply running out of teachers. We're only going to have a look at secondary school teachers and ignore primary school teachers for this short column. Trends are roughly the same though. As of the 2021 census, we have 156,000 secondary school teachers in Australia. The population of secondary school age between 10 and 18 will grow by only 4% in the next decade from 2.93 million to 3.05 million. If Australia grows by a whopping 14% during that period, why should we be worried about a lack of teachers? Well, assuming the current teacher to student ratio, we will need to add 4% more teachers to the workforce. 4% of 156,000, that's around 6,000. Surely we can train and educate just over 6,000 teachers in the coming decade. That's only 600 teachers per annum. Easy job. Oops, we forgot about retiring teachers. Estimating the number of teachers who will retire in the next decade and therefore will need to be replaced is a bit tricky. Let's use a quick and overly simplistic approach to understand the order of magnitude of this challenge. It doesn't matter much if we over or undercount the shortage by a few thousand teachers. At the moment, some 27,000 teachers are aged between 55 to 64 and are approaching retirement fast. In 10 years, about 22% based on the number of teachers in the 65 to 74 bracket might still be in the workforce. That's not even 6,000 of them. Of the 7,000 teachers that are over 65 at the moment, just 300 or so will still be employed in 10 years. Taken together, we shrink the current pool of 34,000 older teachers, that's 55 plus, down to 6,000 teachers in a decade. That's a gap of 28,000 teachers that must be filled. And that, of course, is on top of the 6,000 new teachers needed because of simple population growth. This number is likely an undercount as we aren't estimating how many teachers leave the profession. We're also not talking about the huge chunk of millennials born between 1982 and 1999, teachers who will take parental leave in the coming decade. The need for fill-ins will be bigger than ever. Never mind how rough and imprecise the logic that led to the quick estimate of 34,000 new teachers needed by the next decade, it becomes clear that we're facing an uphill battle, pumping out 3,400 new teachers – that actually end up teaching every year was never an easy task. But in our current economic environment, things are only getting more difficult. Teachers are, dare I say, educated, smart, and capable people. They consider a career in teaching because they feel drawn to the noble act of imparting knowledge to the next generation. Financial pressures surely must make some of them look more favorably at related professional options, which pay more money. As more industries accept the need for lifelong learning, teachers can easily find new homes in adult learning. Even jumping to unrelated industries will be easy for teachers in an environment shaped by a prolonged skills shortage. More teachers than ever consider leaving the profession. The last few pandemic years weren't fun and pay is better in other industries. Also, remember that in any short-staffed industry, the existing staff gets worked half to death. This creates a downward spiral. The more people decide to leave an industry, the more the remaining workers have to work. The more likely the remaining workers are then to leave the industry. Teachers never chose their careers because they were after the big bucks. Teaching is a vocation, a desire to impart knowledge, a desire to positively impact the lives of young people. As a knowledge economy, Australia cannot afford to weaken the quality of education. Having highly talented and motivated young people choose a career in teaching is an important building block in ensuring the nation is ready for the knowledge-heavy future of work. The current and expanding teacher shortage at least isn't an issue which researchers, practitioners and politicians are ignorant of. Plenty of reports on the topic have been published in recent years. These reports tend to come up with similar focus areas. Strengthen initial teacher education, that seems doable. Keep the teachers we have, increasingly difficult. Elevate the profession, challenging but crucial in my opinion. And better anticipating future teachers' workforce needs. Technical expertise might become less important when pedagogical skills become more important. The leverage teachers have in improving society remains as big as it always has been, and Australia simply cannot afford a lack of teachers. Increased pay or generous tax deductions might incentivise teachers. All of these options must remain on the table. And that was from demographer Simon Koistenmarker, the stats guy. Back to you, Jean.
0: Well, there's mounting evidence that uh, the teachers are walking away, but we need more teachers because the teachers that we've got are getting older and are ready for retirement. And um, large numbers of young people can't see the point in going to university, building up a hex debt, for a job which is insecure and not well paid. So up there in New South Wales, the New South Wales Teachers Federation, which by the way is perhaps the most um, uh, militant in Australia, uh, is turning up the dial on the Mins government. Because unfortunately our politicians haven't got the message about the teacher uh, shortage yet. Over to you Sol.
4: Thanks, Jean. So teachers are turning up the dial on the Minns government. Members are fed up with New South Wales Labor's failure to act decisively on teacher salaries, the teacher shortage and excessive workloads expressed their anger at a rally held outside Premier Chris Minns' electorate office at Kugara Thursday. The rally was the latest in a series of rallies held since New South Wales Labor withdrew from a deal to vary the existing schools award and offer competitive salaries, instead offering an inferior four-year award that would introduce a 2.5% cap on pay increases. The general public watched us. Some passing pedestrians even applauded us said Fed Rep at Sydney Technical High School, Lisa Raberio. The rally was important, so the Minns government knows we will hold them to account and we are not going anywhere. It is also important for the general public to see local teachers on their streets, standing up for each other and the students in our schools and communities. Lisa said she feels disgusted and betrayed, by the Minns government reneging on the heads of agreement. The Minns government and its MPs made promises and they have broken them. They must honour this agreement to build back trust with the teaching profession. Our profession and students are depending on it. Hertzville South Public Schools Fed Rep, Linda Blake, says she went to the rally because it was Really important that the government understands just how betrayed we feel. I was at my local polling station handing out cards for over two hours on election day, helping to defeat the former Liberal state government. I did that because I believed a Labor state government would be different. I am furious that they have broken faith and to add insult to injury, they want to tie us to three years at 2.5%, the exact same amount the Liberal government was tying us to. They are undoing the good work of the negotiated first year of the agreement. It also makes a mockery of Prue Cars' address to us on Staff Development Day. It now seems meaningless. How can we trust them? I'm so angry. Lisa said it was important for teachers to work with each other to hold the Mins government to account. We cannot stand by in silence. She encouraged members to attend local honor the deal rallies to bring the issue to the attention of local communities. It cannot be ignored when in plain sight, she said. It is action designed to hold the Mins government to account. It is important to continue to be seen and heard as members of our union. We are stronger together in numbers and that cannot be ignored, even on local streets. Linda said if members don't attend rallies, the government would think teachers don't care. That will only lead to further attrition and further problems staffing our schools. It's so important that we send the message of just how angry we are and how important it is to get this deal right. The chorus is getting louder with every protest fueled by increased member participation at the Kogura rally federation members were joined by members of the independent education union of australia new south wales act branch the ieu who also have an interest in the outcome of the salaries dispute ieu members have been campaigning for the min's government to hashtag take teacher pay seriously Almost 3,500 emails have been sent to the New South Wales Premier and Education Minister via an IEU email petition, demanding the New South Wales government come back to the negotiating table on teacher pay. On the 30th of June in 2022, IEU members working in Catholic schools joined with Federation members in marching to New South Wales Parliament House to protest government inaction on just salaries unsustainable workloads, and the teacher shortage. Federation President Henry Rahendra told the Kagara crowd the teacher shortage meant teachers were dealing with unsustainable workloads and were at risk of burnout. This problem is getting worse, and our kids deserve better. The fastest and best way to tackle this crisis is for the government to pay teachers what they're worth. It's not too late to revive and honour the agreement the government made. He said teachers would continue to exert maximum political pressure on the government and the Federation Council would meet on the 9th of September to decide whether to escalate action further. Good for you, teachers in New South Wales. Yes, um, and I think it's very
0: interesting that the private school teachers are wanting to join in because uh, Usually it's the public school teachers that get the goodies and they pass on to the private school teachers. And then the private schools are pay more in order to get the good teachers out of the public schools. That's mm-hmm. the market economy for you.
4: Mm-hmm. But I can, I at can the end of the day, that.
0: it's the poor children that suffer.
4: Definitely. I think I can imagine some teachers also don't really feel like they have a choice but to work at private schools if they want to be making money so maybe they would like the choice to work at public schools as well so it makes sense they're joining the protest
0: yes uh they're usually actually um it used to be the case that the private school teachers used to want to get into the public schools but um i think that they're all of them particularly in some of the poorer uh, private schools are are not too well off. but Mm -hmm. um yes it's a It's a a very interesting situation that Australian teachers now find themselves in in Australia. But they are becoming scarce, so their labour will become more and more valuable. But um, that's enough about teachers. We're going off to America now with Dale. Thanks, Jean.
2: Okay, so this is a strange one. This is from Diane Ravitch's blog. Oklahoma, will the state's extremist Secretary of Education seize control of Tulsa schools? Oklahoman John Thompson writes about the conflict enveloping the Tulsa public schools. Ryan Walters, the extremist Secretary of Education, wants to take over Tulsa's public schools. Opposition to Walters' plans by Tulsa's parents and political leaders is growing. State takeovers of school districts have historically failed, but Walters doesn't appear to know it. Thompson writes, Oklahoma Secretary of Education Ryan Walters has a history of threatening the accreditation of the Tulsa public schools, promising to fire its superintendent, Deborah Gist, and driving Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, DEI, out of the classrooms, as well as mandating his ideology driven curriculums. Walter's attacks grew dramatically as he responded to the news in June that he might be in danger because his department's administration of federal G.E.E.R. funds is being investigated by FBI agents and the Oklahoma Attorney General's office, according to people with direct knowledge of the inquiry. For instance, Walters said at a Moms for Liberty event, Tulsa Public Schools is getting money from the Chinese Communist government. He said, they funneled it through a non profit, I mean, money laundered it through a non profit in Texas. But then Walters said he'd been in regular, regular communication with Houston H-I-S-D, about their school takeover. According to HTUL News, he said, there's currently a standards team and textbook committee to gather information on possible vendors like Hillsdale College and Prager U. Immediately afterwards, journalists, educators, and public school supporters studied the history of broad foundation takeovers in Dallas and the HISD. Even better, they spoke out in ways I'd never seen in Oklahoma's edu-politics. For example, TPS board member, Jeanette Marshall, said, during the board's 90-minute discussion of the district's accreditation status, we were under attack. If you're not keeping up with Houston, if we continue on the course, course we're on that's where we're headed that shouldn't be just as important the Tulsa world balanced its excellent reporting with editorials and published letters to the editors the following headline 13 headlines were cited in just one day so this was on the 18th of August in 2023 of the papers e-edition a letter was many good things successes happening in Tulsa public schools Another letter: State school board needs to show support for tu- support for Tulsa community. Stop antics of top official. A letter: Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum must be more forceful defending Tulsa schools. Another letter. Tulsa Superintendent Deborah Gist deserves credit for leading through times of crisis. Letter, State Education Department ought to help improve schools, not tear down. Another letter, State Superintendent has no specific plans for Tulsa schools, only insults. A letter, State Superintendent's attack on Tulsa schools harms students across the state. Another letter, Tulsa clergy leaders to urge state to build bridges with TPS, not hurl rocks. In another letter, Oklahoma education crisis comes from state superintendent pushing a personal agenda. An editorial piece titled, Silence is no way to improve schools or defend representative democracy. Another editorial piece, losing control of Tulsa schools to state bureaucrats is bad for city and students. Ginny Graham, manufactured crisis in schools takes time away for big picture discussions. And another opinion piece, set aside political rhetoric, provide Tulsa schools help to keep good teachers. The first thing that stands out about the world's coverage is its excellent journalism and its fact checking of walters the first thing that stands out from the world's opinion piece and letters to the editor is the strong wording when opposing walters threat to the tulsa public schools the letters oppose walters antics and his personal agenda, his political rhetoric, how he has no specific plan for Tulsa schools, only insults, and how he harms students across the state, as well as how he should help improve schools, not tear down, and how the mayor must be more forceful defending Tulsa schools. The editorials criticised the silence of political leaders who belatedly pushed back against Walters, saying the TPS needs partners, champions and advocates to improve, not political firebombs and quiet bystanders. Another argued that Walter's political rhetoric hurts the retention of good teachers and that it hurts the city. Ginny Graham described the chaos that she'd witnessed when enrolling her child in school and explained the TPS administrators are completely overwhelmed by the fire hose of misinformation, distortions and lies coming at them. Their time is monopolized by people seemingly hell-bent on tearing down the district rather than offering a helping hand or even even sitting down for an informative, informative discussion, and TPS board school board chair Stacy Woolley closes her editorial with, "Your TPS Board of Education has a plan. Walters does too, but not one that works on behalf of Tulsans." I didn't sign up for this takeover, and neither did you. As a community, we must stop it. Moreover, the world reported on. F- powerful philanthropists like the Schusterman and Kaiser Foundations who've publicly opposed Walters' takeover threats. Then Mayor G.T. Bynum came out against the takeover. The resistance has even reached the point where the world editorialised conservative lawmakers must speak up. And now Governor Kevin Stitt has distanced himself from the extremist, that's Walters, who he appointed and then repeatedly supported. The world reported, Stitt said, He believes the State Board of Education will not overreact when considering accreditation for Tulsa Public Schools. Stitt now says, I don't know what takeover is, what they're talking about. I believe in local control. I think the local board needs to address that. When I first learned about Walters' new threats, I worried. If we don't recognise the extent of the threats of a HISD-style takeover, he might unite the worst of the corporate reform privatizers with his Moms for Liberty extremism and impose irreparable damage on the TPS and other school systems. But if we unite, the damage that Walters is promising to inflict on the TPS and the Tulsa metropolitan area as a whole could undermine his extremist campaigns. It looks to me that Tulsans and other Oklahomans are pushing back, making it more likely that Walters will lose this fight. So that's very interesting indeed. Back to you, Jean.
0: Well, we're back from America and we're back to the dogs program and the best part of it, the great state school. (laughs)
1: Every week on the Dogs program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school.
2: State schools are great schools. School of the week, state school. School, school are great of the school. week, great state schools. State, state schools, schools school are great of the week, schools.
1: school for the week here on the Dogs program. And this week's great state school is Beveridge Primary School. Here's a statement from their website. Welcome to Beveridge Primary School. Beveridge Primary School is a growing school on the northern fringe of Melbourne. In 2007 we had 45 students and in 2023 we have more than 500 students. The values which underpin our disciplinary framework of everybody has the right to feel safe and comfortable and everybody has the right to learn as much as possible are respect, togetherness, excellence and resilience. We believe that it is the job of every adult that our students encounter to model these ideals all day, every day. Our community is committed to nurturing active and caring Australian citizens who support intercultural understanding and can acknowledge and value alternative points of view. The staff, parents and community of Beveridge Primary are committed to developing the social, emotional and academic needs of our students by promoting resilience, persistence and courage. We motivate each child to strive to achieve their full potential and take risks in an environment which is safe, supporting and nurturing. We have strong parental and community involvement throughout the school which supports our rich curriculum. Our curriculum offers music, dance and an annual whole school production, fine arts and physical education. We are working towards developing a one-to-one computer program in the school and a sophisticated IT skills program scaffolded into student programs. Our wellbeing program includes literacy and numeracy extension and support programs and social skills courses to support students, their families and teachers to enable all to achieve their potential. And some facts and figures from ACARA. The school has 470 pupils. The Ixia Index of Community Social Educational Advantage value of the school is 997, below the average of 1000. The students are mainly from disadvantaged backgrounds. 8% have parents from the upper 25% in income, 25% in the second highest quartile, 32% from the third quart- quartile and 35% from the poorest 25% of the community. 29% of the pupils speak a language other than English and 4% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of semi-rural urban development students with dedicated principal and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $14,527 to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $1.52 million from the federal government and $5 million from the state government. $53,670 from fees, and 86242 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only $641,567. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results indicate that the children in this school are progressing as well and better than those in similar schools. So congratulations, Beveridge Primary School. You are our great state school of the week.
0: Thank you very much. So that's Beveridge, a growing school on the outskirts of Melbourne. Semi-rural but very quickly becoming urban. And uh, congratulations to the teachers and parents and children in that school. But we've come to the end of our time. And if you want to know more about the dogs, of course, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. And uh, from Dale and Andy and Soul and myself. It's bye for now.
3: I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I but Joe here ten years dead I never died says he i never died says he in salt lake city joe says i am standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge says joe Joe, you're ten years dead.